You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health Podcast. I'm speaking to uh, David Edelman. He's a visiting scholar at the Department of Psychological and Brain Sciences, Dartmouth College. Uh, he's a former lecturer at the Department of Psychology, University of California, San Diego. Um, so, David, thank you for coming. How are you doing? Good. How are you? Great to great to be here. All right. Yeah. So, what are you uh, what are you studying? It looks like uh, human consciousness, sorry, consciousness and Non-human animals is that the focus? Yeah, that's that's generally the idea. Um, started off as a sort of a theoretical interest. Um, some years ago, I, I uh, co-authored some papers with uh, my friend and colleague Anil Seth, who's now at uh, University of Sussex, and Bernie Bars, who got fairly well known for uh, the global workspace theory of consciousness. And so that sort of transformed over the years into something that was not just theoretical, but Perhaps you know was was getting some traction experimentally, um, and so one of one of the my, my main sort of interest at this point is um, visual perception in the octopus, actually cognition generally in the octopus, um, and uh, that's that's sort of my model organism at the moment. I think it's a, a profoundly wonderful um, um, model organism for a variety of reasons, which we can get into. Yeah, how come uh, not dogs? They seem to be pretty conscious <laughs> and pretty cool. Yeah, dogs are really cool. I, I love my dogs, and I think that, you know, I think I think my dogs are, are entirely conscious, of course. Um, but uh, the the main reason that I settled on octopus is, you know, in in my meanderings to kind of come up with uh, the research for these these papers some years ago, I I happened on all of the studies of behavior in octopus, which pointed, pointed to an animal that had a pretty sophisticated um, suite of behavioral adaptations. Um, and, you know, while their brain, their brain isn't exactly a, a black box to us, we have some, some information to go on. Um, most of the work that's been done um, that sort of points to some sort of intelligence, albeit an alien intelligence, is, uh, is behavioral. Uh, so, so they represent a perfect sort of uh, evolutionary experiment in the sense that the last common ancestor we shared, or that vertebrates generally shared with, with uh, cephalopods, including the octopus, was 500 million years ago, which means that our common ancestor was an animal that didn't have much of a nervous system and had absolutely no, no eyes, um, something worm-like, which is pretty extraordinary and points to the idea that whatever intelligence um, that cephalopods developed and you know, putative conscious processing happened in parallel with the vertebrate line. It wasn't as a result of, of evolving from some common ancestor that itself was intelligent and or aware. So that's pretty extraordinary. That that indicates that this is a totally independent evolutionary experiment. Uh, to trace when consciousness first began, does anyone have an idea of when that uh, all of a sudden happened? Or well, do people you know, think that all life has consciousness? Well, there are there are quite a few people who believe that you know all life in some some form or other has has uh, some sense of awareness um, down to the single cell. I'm I'm afraid I'm not one of those people. I think that uh, awareness takes a complex nervous system, but not just a complex nervous system, a nervous system that allows for the integration, fast integration of a lot of sensory information into sort of bound percepts that that organism can remember and recall. Um, and so, yeah, I'm very interested in the origins of consciousness. I think it goes back very, very early, but I don't think it goes back to single cell animals. I think it, it goes back to some time deep in the Cambrian. And I think one of, 
one of the um, innovations that probably paved the way or appeared in lockstep, perhaps with awareness, was the emergence of um, eyes that could focus on objects that were both near and far. In other words, eyes that were capable of accommodation, eyes that had the capacity for distance vision. And well, why do I think that that's important? I think that's important because if you can see something from afar before that something has seen you, whether it's predator or prey, all of a sudden time is on your side. If you don't move, if you stay still and you watch or you monitor that something in the, in, in the distance, you can potentially plan for your next move. Um, so distance vision is sort of important in that sense. So you don't have to react instantly. You don't have to escape instantly as long as the predator or the prey species hasn't seen you. Um, and you have a tremendous advantage once you're capable of monitoring a scene from afar. So I think distance vision is very important. And the very first evidence I think that we have that uh, you know distance vision you know is is apparent is deep in the Cambrian, so sometime between 540 and, say, 520 million years. And that's the very period in which, basically, every form of eye that's ever existed and that exists today appears. In a very short period of time, in rapid, in rapid order, you have all kinds of eyes. But this is a particular kind of an eye. It's a single compartment. It's not like an insect eye with multiple, you know, what we call omatidia, so multiple facets. It's a single eye, liquid-filled, it has a focusing lens, and that focusing lens allows you, of course, to accommodate and to see objects that are close by and objects that are far away. So I think that's a pretty important innovation and a clue as to when awareness came on the scene. Well, what about the you know the immune system, for instance, in, in people? I mean, in order for there to be an immune system, there has to be what's called self and non-self. So oh, wouldn't yeah. that be a form of consciousness? Well, I don't know whether I'd go so far as to say it's consciousness, but it's a very interesting thing that you bring up because um, it, it is an important, I would say it's an important contingency. I mean, it's an, it, it's, it's an important aspect to, you know, to divine self versus non-self. Um, and for future reference through, through the, the, the duration of the podcast, I should, I should clarify that I make a distinction between awareness of a, sort of a, a primary or sensory variety and self-awareness. I think there's a distinction. I think you can be aware of a scene, but there doesn't necessarily have to be an agent within that scene. You don't necessarily have to be aware of yourself within that scene. Now, that's a little bit different than talking about recognizing the immune response, recognizing self versus foreign invader. And it's interesting you bring that up because my dad, my dad, Gerald Edelman, kind of had a pivotal role in, in you know, the formulation of modern immunology. Uh, he was the guy who cracked the structure of gamma globulin, the, the human antibody. Uh, in the 60s. And um, he had some very early ideas about this as well. And it's interesting that you bring it up too for the fact that this is what guided him on his path as he transitioned from immunology into developmental biology and finally into neurobiology. And he, in his time, was uh, sort of a consciousness theoretician. He had an idea about what consciousness was. So, yeah. So I think that what the what, what uh, T-cells do, what, what the immune system does, is definitely dis distinguishing between self and non-self, but do I believe that it is of the same variety as, as what you would see in, in an animal that it's aware that is aware of itself moving through a world? Um, I don't think I I would accept that. Although I do believe that that kind of a system is it's, or that kind of a process is very elemental in the in the origins of um, intelligence and the origins of of awareness, only of course instantiated in nervous systems and brains, and not in in uh, the lymphatic system or the immune response. Well, what about in the squid? Do you believe the squid is you know, the type of squid that you study? Do you believe it's conscious or uh, well, I, something at some lower level? Right. Actually, I I study I, I study solely octopuses. So octopuses and squid are, are uh, I mean, they're they're very closely related. They're the three living the three living coleoid or soft-bodied bodied cephalopods are squid, octopus, and cuttlefish. Now, if you look at an octopus, what's interesting about an octopus is we, we, we think of them as having arms. We actually, we actually define their appendages as arms because they have sort of multiple degrees of freedom. They can do all kinds of things with those arms. They can even form artificial elbows, as Benjamin Hockner in Israel elegantly showed, and reproduce those elbows and picking 
picking up objects. They now they don't have a skele a, a hard skeleton, right? So it's not like a set of lever arms. It's not hard bones to which muscles are attached. It's a hydrostatic. So they're all soft bodies. So effectively, when they make an elbow, they're essentially limiting the the movement in a particular aspect of their arm in a particular way and it's more or less the same area every time or close to the same area every time and they 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 pick up objects as we would sort of pick up objects um now squid don't really do that they 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 actually have tentacles we think of octopuses as having arms we think of squid as having tentacles and what does that mean well that means that squid can hunt they're very capable hunters like octopuses but when they use their appendages, when they use their tentacles, they're essentially just grabbing objects. Um, they can do some interesting things. They can they can pull the masks off of uh, scuba divers they want to get rid of off the coast of Mexico, and we've seen that happen a number of times. It's a pretty interesting behavior. Wow. They understand they understand that as soon as they remove the mask and the respirator, this this troublesome little thing that's bugging them will instantly rise to the surface and get out of their way. So that's pretty cool. That's cool. cool. But but uh, they you know they don't really use their appendages the same way. They're sort of, they're more limited in the use of their appendages. Same thing with cuttlefish. Cuttlefish also have tentacles. Um, and when you watch them hunting, you know they they can wait, they lie in wait for you know the prey to come by. And they use two of their tentacles, two specialized tentacles. Actually, they have ten, not just eight. They have these these two spe- special sort of spear-like tentacles to grab. Um, whatever is swimming by, if they want to, if they want to eat it. Um, but that's kind of the limits. Uh, th- those are the limits of their sort of dexterity, if you like. Um, whereas octopus do some really, really extraordinary things with their arms, and that actually also speaks to, you know, uh, some degree of complexity in their nervous system, but also in um, their behavior. Obviously, that is perhaps ranks them as, as somewhat above uh, cuttlefish and squid, who, who are no slouches, but nevertheless, there, there's a difference. So what are you, uh, again, what is it that you're studying? I mean, what I wanted to say to you is, um, like for myself, I, I would think that most people feel like they are in a tennis ball-sized area right behind their eyes, or like behind and above their eyes. Like when I think about myself, where am I? I am in this spot. I don't feel like mm-hmm. I am in my finger or I'm in my leg. It's, right. it's weird. You know, I'm composed of all these individual cells. And where is my consciousness? Why do the brain cells, you know, in particular, make this thing called consciousness? Why does it feel like to me that that's where it is in my body and not other places? Right. Well, are you able to elucidate any of this? It's very, it's, it's, it's kind of hard. But one, one thing I would say is that, you know, there, there was a sort of a trend early on in the, in the development of, of nervous systems, which is a trend toward centralization, right? So, or what, what is also referred to as cephalization, the idea that you had a central sort of neural core that would act as sort of the, 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 the central processor for all of these sort of peripheral elements, for your limbs, for your viscera, you know, your stomach, your gut, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and as to you know, why we have this sense that, you know, it's this space behind my eyes, right, that that is doing all the heavy lifting in terms of awareness, and it's not somewhere else. Um, you know, it's a, re- it's a really good question, but it maybe stands to reason that that's the case because that central core is pulling together all this vital information on which any one of your conscious percepts is based. Now, conscious percepts can be pretty complicated. They can be pretty simple or relatively simple, but they can be pretty complicated. They can involve internal or intrinsic sorts of signals, interoceptive signals, right? Signals from your from your gut, signals from you know other aspects of your core. They can involve peripheral signals. They can involve signals from your fingers, signals you know, um, you know, or translation, I should say, uh, of you know information coming from the outside world as it as it interacts with sensors in within your skin or you know uh, pressure sensors temperature sensors etc cetera, etc cetera. so maybe we have this sense that it's you know it's this sort of space between between our eyes this this thing inside our skulls because you know essentially that's where where everything comes together 
Um, that being said, I have to be very careful because I don't want to, you know, I don't want to sort of say the brain is sort of separate and apart in terms of sort of awareness, separate and apart from the rest of the body. I would say your brain is your body, your body is your brain. But that being said, it maybe it's a convenient, I wouldn't say illusion, but a, a convenient, maybe it's a convenient notion that, um, that everything sort of resides, you know, behind your eyes, effectively, or between your ears, et cetera, et cetera. Because that's where everything sort of comes together in any case, or most everything in terms of conscious awareness. Um, even pain is central, right? Um, we have, there's sort of an, an illusory quality to pain as an example um, that, you know, if I stub my toe, the pain is in my toe. But that's not actually true. The damage, you know, there are nociceptors that are picking up potential damage to my toe, right? But the actual sensation of pain, which in many cases, or in a variety of cases, can be blocked, that is a, a, a creature of your central nervous system, or that is that's a product of your central nervous system. Pain, pain is in your brain, effectively, right? So that speaks to the sort of this this sort of central locus. Even though when you feel pain, it seems as if you can localize it to a, a point in your body, and indeed you can to the extent that that's that's where potential damage is occurring. That's where your nociceptors have kind of gone off. But that's about it. So what uh, what have you gotten from studying the octopus? You know, you say it's an alien intelligence, but what are the things that you learned that, that have surprised you about studying it? Uh, I guess one of the things that surprised me from early on, uh, and just because I had my own prejudices about uh, invertebrates that I had encountered, you know, mostly insects and some pretty sophisticated insects, including really large praying mantises and such, um, a, a particular prejudice I came to all of this with is is was the notion that you know, that they had very limited capacity to attend to the world or to attend to me, right, as as some sort of entity in the world that I wasn't used to or I wasn't at all prepared for the idea that here's this invertebrate and he's looking at me and he's he's actually tracking me with his eyes and he's more or less seemingly patiently observing and not necessarily doing anything, just sort of watching me. And it's clear that he's watching me because I can see his pupils following me. Um, strange as those pupils are, I can see that his eyes are more or less tracking. And that was pretty extraordinary. And that was a very early sort of a revelation, a personal revelation for me, my first encounter, my very first encounter with an octopus in Italy in the in a tank at the Statum Zoologica in uh, Naples, the oldest uh, European marine station, which is a remarkable place. Um, so from that very first encounter, um, I had this this figuratively and literally eye-opening experience that here's this animal that doesn't have a backbone and it's attending to me and it has, you know, it it's following me. And seemingly with all of that, I was thinking, I, or I asked myself when, when I, when I observed this, well, what's going on between those two eyes that seem to be tracking me because those sophisticated eyes didn't appear in a vacuum. They didn't evolve in a vacuum. There's a lot of neural processing behind them. Um, and so that led me on the path, I guess, to to where I am today. And where I am today is I'm trying to, with my colleague Peter at Dartmouth, we're we're very interested in, in vision. We're interested in perception. We're we're particularly interested in the building blocks of what you might call awareness. One being memory. Um, you know, so visual perception, memory. These things are kind of driving driving my particular interest in the octopus today. Um, so, but that well, first what are you getting from it? What are you getting from its visual perception? You know, like where, if we just look at vision only, what is the, uh, I mean, I don't know, what's the alienness of their perception versus ours? Are they just literally seeing in a different visible spectrum? Are they somehow able to interpret visual data very differently than us? What, what's yeah, the learning well, we, Right. So, so one thing we do know is that, yes, they are, they are from the world um, in a different sort of spectrum, right? Sort of shifted down to blue the bluish range, right? And they, we've only identified one photoreceptor, so we know that they don't, they don't have a color vision that's akin to what we have, even though they seem to be able to match, um, they seem to be able to, to match different wavelengths. We can see it in their camouflage, that they're able to sort of blend into objects of different colors. So the thing that I'm, I'm stuck on is, is the idea of, of, vision, the idea uh, of the eye as a way into other things. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to understand um, elements like working memory, short-term memory of varying of, of different kinds, um, 
through the use of, of um, the visual pathway. So vision is both interesting in the sense that they have this remarkable vision for an invertebrate, this remarkable visual capacity for an invertebrate, but it's also very practical for us. And what we're getting at and what we're beginning to glean from via the visual sense is that these animals have sophisticated forms of memory. We're really, again, concentrating on the building blocks. We're not, we're not going after consciousness in and of itself right now, right? That's, that would be kind of, you know, for, for any researcher at this point who's working with a, a model organism that hasn't really been sussed out in, in such great detail yet, it would probably be right. the acme of foolishness to say, oh, we're going to go after the brass ring and we're going to figure out if these animals are conscious. No, what's the best way to go about it if you're a scientist? I think the best way is to say, well, what are the necessary, what are the contingent elements of consciousness, right? What are the things that are important for the conscious faculty? And one thing that's important is, in our case, we're a very visual one, um, right? So vision is very, figures very importantly into our, our sense of awareness of, or how we build you know, sort of models of the world that we can refer to consciously in, in recall. Um, you know, and of course, animals have different, I mean, I'm not saying that vision is the be all and end all of, of consciousness. Of course it isn't, you know, and, and people often ask me, well, you're so fixated on vision. What about, um, what about, well, vision is a good what, proxy. Like, uh, what's that? You said the octopus can rip the face masks off divers and knows to do that, right? Squid, squid can do that. Yes. Absolutely. Oh, squid. Okay. Yeah. So that, I, I know I keep going wrong animal here, but let's just say squid. That's okay. So okay. at least with squid, they have a, they know themselves. They know the that other the diver. They have a visual memory. They've seen the shape of the thing before. They've seen the mask very specifically, which is a very sure. specific visual acuity. They know to pull it off, and that'll get right. the, the creature to leave. I mean, there's a tremendous amount of intelligence and you know stuff wrapped Absolutely. up in consciousness, just wrapped up in that one action. Yes. And so, you know, one, one thing that you can do with these animals and an octopus in particular is you can subject them to the same kinds of experimental paradigms that people have done in vertebrates for, you know, almost 100 years, right? People have done maze, done tests involving mazes, right? Um, involving sort of some sort of problem solving, involving um, something that looks like it requires a task that requires some kind of inhibition. In other words, instead of just grabbing something, right, um, reflexively, it's food, I'm going to eat it, right. whatever. Um, you know, they have to wait. There's some sort of a, a you know, there's a go, no-go paradigm that, that actually is very good for, for sort of looking at this sort of thing. But what we're trying to do essentially is to repeat quite a bit of the work that has, has already been done in, in vertebrate animals, in particular in uh, rodents and definitely in uh, in primate, uh, and that's a long uh, that's a long road to hoe. That's a lot of uh, that's a lot of work ahead of us. But it's really important, and it's important to establish these sorts of things. It's sort of trying to apply um, what was called psychophysics starting in the late 19th century and into the 20th. Applies a psychophysical approach to this amazing invertebrate in a way that nobody has done before. So. Well, are you doing this, or are there other scientists that you're looking at their experiments and applying? Well, that's primarily our interest. I mean, I don't know whether there are any other scientists out there who are doing it. It seems like something that, um, you know, most people have sort of either studiously or, you know, without any particular deliberation have avoided. Um, I don't see that approach being worked out in other places. But So that's something that I think that we're trying to do that's that's kind of new. Um, People have done... Octopus cognitive achievements. What have you seen? That's really amazing. Yeah, cool. yeah. I mean, and and the thing about it is, um, and not to, I don't want to poo-poo the work that anybody has already done. There's been, as I said, there's been a lot of uh, work on the behavior of these animals. There's certainly a body of literature. A lot of that, um, a lot of those studies, or quite a few of them, were sort of observations from the wild. Some of them were experimental in a, in aquaria all over the world, uh, in laboratories all over the world, but. What I would say about these approaches is they, they haven't been particularly systematic, right? Um, they didn't seem to have a, a sort of a grand organizing principle, right? So, 
So, okay, well, let's study uh, memory in the octopus or let's study something, let's look for this. But they haven't sort of reached for sort of a greater goal and, and sort of, you know, gotten their ducks in a row in any systematic fashion. And that, that's kind of the thing. That's sort of the approach that we're mostly in right now. Again, what are you trying to find and why? What's, what's your goal? So the goal is, again, to, to find, to, to, to work out whether we can demonstrate what I think of as, as many of the building blocks for awareness, for consciousness. In the octopus, one building block is is memory, working memory in particular. Uh, another building block is what's often called binding, the idea that the animal is capable of um, integrating different um, sensory channels or submodal properties of one sensory channel into a unified percept. Right, that's something we can do on a dime as humans, as primates, as mammals. Generally, we do that. We don't think anything of it. Right, you. You know, in your in your mind's eye, if you're looking at a computer right now, you have a gestalt of your Mac or your PC, right? Now, if you, in closer examination, you can sort of spotlight various features of that. I'm looking at my Mac and I see MacBook Pro. There's a label underneath my screen that says MacBook Pro. Well, that's a little detail. But in general, you have a percept of a computer, of a laptop, right? That well, involves... Here's a quick question. So like an octopus, they, I would think they have like burrows in a coral reef, right? They have a certain place they go like to hide. Yeah, some species will burrow into the sand to, to hide or to, to, to hide themselves from predator or prey. Some will, you know, nest themselves within a reef. Um, there are some beautiful videos okay, of an so, octopus. Yeah. yeah, so the one that nests itself in a reef, does it always go to the same spot in the reef? And does it, Often you know, they do. if it does, yeah. for instance... Well, that's memory, yeah. and the octopus knows oh, it has sure. to like contort, contort itself in a certain way to fit in there. Where they even in the sure. first place it does fit in there. So all that I would think would demonstrate all this stuff. Well, that's one. You know, that's yes. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely that's definitely sort of in, in, in some encouraging evidence. But you know, when we're talking about memory and we're talking about awareness, um, let me sort of one ground rule I should, should should sort of straighten out for me at least is that. Um, I have a very sort of liberal definition of what memory is. If you can pull together, um, if you can pull together something into a unified percept, in other words, let's say, uh, you know, I see something that looks like a cookie. Uh, I've never seen it before. It has these brown chips in it, these chocolate chips. It's giving off a smell that's very pungent. It's very enticing, you know, sugary smell. Um, and, um, it has a particular feel, and I can taste something that's distinct about it. Those are all sort of different. Those are coming in on different sensory channels, and I'm pulling that all together. And I will, yes, I will remember that in future that that will be a, a sort of a preserved percept that later, you know, attains the label cookie, right? Let's say I'm a I'm a I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, a ten month or twelve month old infant, uh, and this is my first encounter with cookie. Well, there's no good reason that all of the that all of those sensory aspects of that cookie should be causally related to me before I actually see a cookie or I experience a cookie. As far as my nervous system is concerned, all of those things coming in on different sensory channels simultaneously, more or less, are coincident, but they're not necessarily causally related. Now, they become causally related when I come to know this thing that's called a cookie, right? So that's a unified percept. Um, and... If I can hold that in memory, and memory doesn't have to be very long, I mean, if I can hold something in memory for a short period of time. Now, what I'm talking about now is almost an, an it's an episodic-like memory. Um, but you don't necessarily have to sort of, uh, you don't have to um, assume that episodic memory is the be-all and end-all for conscious awareness. You could sort of start with working, right? Working memory is very short-term, doesn't last very long, but it also involves, um, you know, it also in, involves, it is, it is some sort of a memory. Um, if you can show even something like working memory in, in an invertebrate, like a, like a cephalopod, um, you're, you're a long way toward, you know, making a good argument for awareness being there. And, and it sounds really, in a way, I know to a lot of people, it sounds sort of silly that, well, well this, all of this stuff seems obvious to us. And of course, viscerally, in my gut, you know, when I look at my dogs or when I watch my dogs interacting with me, I say, well, of course they're conscious. They're doing all these things. But again, there's a distinction between that kind of an observation, which is sort of every day, whatever, 
and a scientific observation, which may be based on, you know, repetition of a particular kind of experiment, something that's systematic and empirical, right? And, and I have to be very careful, you know, I, I, you know, people often talk about anthropomorphism, right? Sort of, sort of um, assuming sort of human-like properties in, in an animal that is, is, isn't human at all. Um, this is- Consciousness doesn't similar. need to mean human. Intelligence doesn't no, no, no. need to mean no, no, no. human. Right, yeah. right. But what I'm, what I'm saying is you, you have to be careful um, to make, you know, to make a distinction between, you know, a sort of a, a feeling, uh, a, an observation that's um, in a way kind of anecdotal and something that's kind of systematic. Um, that's, that's what scientists do, right? You know, so um, I can show, you know, systematically that a particular kind of an animal, whether it's an octopus or, or something else, has different kinds of memory. It has working memory or it has episodic memory. And I can do this experimentally. And people have done this experimentally for a whole variety of animals. Um, you know, and, and again, uh, um, we, have to be, we have to be really careful when we're trying to suss out something like consciousness because, well, for one thing, there are a lot of people who would say there's no agreed upon definition for what consciousness is. And they'd probably be right, even though to me, I mean, I have a, a definition that I've sort of accepted uh, over the years that it's pretty simple. It's a, it's, it's a very plain vanilla um, notion of consciousness, but it works for me. The idea that consciousness at, a, at the bare minimum, in my mind, must be the ability of an organism to pull together, as I said before, disparate aspects of sensation into a bound percept and something that's integrated and that's of a piece, right? It's whole, it's a unitary thing. And then further recall that or, or hold that in memory for a certain length of time. It, has, it doesn't have to be very long at all, it can be a few seconds. But if you can bind something together and have that dynamic representation bound together, persist in your head for a time, that's all I need. I mean, that is a basic form of awareness. That is to my mind, sensory awareness. Now that is, is that awareness of, is that self-awareness? No. That's something a little somewhat more primitive than self-awareness. That's awareness, you know, maybe of a scene, but not of a self, not a, of, a, of a me or an I running around in that scene, okay? Um, and as a scientist, it's, it's kind of, um, you know, I have to, uh, I have to approach this in a, in a sort of a systematic way, and I have to sort of say, okay, well, these are the elements that are critical to conscious processing, and I need to show each of these individually to make my case because I can't simply say, oh, you know, here's an experiment that, that is, you know, a slam dunk that shows that these animals are absolutely aware. But by, by proving that they have these other faculties, which are very, very important for conscious process um, and without which you wouldn't have con consciousness, um, I, can, I can sort of be more conservative about it and, and make a more careful and deliberative case. I hope that that helps. Well, who said that that, uh, that that is the the base form of consciousness and not uh, self versus non self? Well, a number of people have. I mean, of course, maybe it's maybe it's my 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 own prejudice. I mean, there are other people who who said something similar. My dad, for one, did when he was when he was sort of working at his theory of consciousness, did make a distinction between primary consciousness, which is what, what I just described, this idea that you're pulling together the world into um, unitary sensory percepts, and then you're holding them in memory for a certain length of time. And he distinguished that from the appearance of an agent on the scene and, and the notion of an I, you know, and, you know, there are certain animals in the world um, that it seems pretty clear, at least in the wild, don't seem to have, at least as far as we understand it, don't seem to have this notion of, of agent, um, of an I. Um, I as in I, the letter I, not E-Y-E, but I, right? Um, they don't necessarily seem to have it, even though in the laboratory, you can expose them to a particular kind of pedagogy. You can train them in a particular way, and they seem to develop a sense of self. One perfect example in my mind is uh, Alex the Parrot you know, famously raised by Irene Pepperberg, um, who, who still does her research um, at Harvard. Um, and Irene took this very, very young African gray parrot, raised it from a year old, and had had Alex for 30 years with the express purpose originally of figuring out whether 
she could train this animal to, to develop the rudiments of language, hence Alex, avian language experiment. Alex was, was short for avian language experiment. But what I think Irene you know, uncovered, and she may or may not agree with me here in the course of her work with Alex, is that while Alex may not have had some sort of sense of self originally, he certainly developed one. He could he could he could be he could refer in some way or that was clear that in some sense he was referring to himself relative to the world. And that's important. And again, well, going back to the human response, a cell being able to differentiate between a foreign invader, a pathogen and some cell that's part of the body of its host, um, that seems to be a very, very different thing. It's it's definitely a sort of a, a very primal distinction of self versus non-self, but it's it's pretty way down there in terms of, of sophistication. Um, and you're not talking about, um, you know, the, the, I don't think that immune cells, I don't think that T cells are sitting around contemplating um, themselves meandering around in a the world. They're not imagining, you know, themselves moving around in the world and, and what, what in that world is, is part of the body versus what is part of something else. Um, so well, that's their whole job, know, though. I don't think they're they're wondering; they're just acting, living in the well, moment. Well, that's hey, but like, I think that you, they seem to definitely know self from non-self. Yeah, but I think that you you just put your your finger on the, you just you just put your finger on it by saying they're just acting, right? That's just distinctly different than me contemplating something that I haven't done yet, right? Something that I am going to do relative to the rest of the world. That's a different sort of thing. Then that involves a particular form of memory that I don't think you will find in T cells, that you won't find in the immune system as a whole. Clearly, the immune system has some form of what we might say is a memory, uh, right? Yeah. The memory of what they've been yeah. exposed to. Right. And their memory is essentially, it's a repertoire, right? So there's a great deal of variety in the immune system. There's huge variation in the immune system. Um, there are many different kinds of antibodies. No, two, anti no two, two species, if you will, of antibody are exactly alike. And that's why the system works as well as it works. Um, so, so in a sense, I mean, I think we have to be careful because we can, we can get into a sort of a... Um, a sort of a facile view of self versus non-self that doesn't make this distinction, right? Um, you know, that when I talk about me and myself, I am essentially that that self is, is, is based on, well, it's based on my history of interactions with the world as is, you know, the, the way an immune system responds to the world. It, it has a memory, but that's the immune system as a whole. That's not an individual T cell. Right, um, and I would never say the that individual T cell. Still, you know, where did it get that original playbook that was inherited? Well, so it must have been stored and, and somewhere as memory. No, the individual T cell, by virtue of its conformation, that it it it's carrying antibodies that have a particular conformation. That conformation is genetically imbued. I mean, essentially, that conformation is fixed when you come into the world. You come into the world with um, with a variety of of antibodies, a huge variety of antibodies. You have a repertoire already. Now that repertoire grows to an extent, but the fact that you already have that repertoire means your immune system is essentially the way it works is it's matching the repertoire with the world, right? So the world is the world of pathogens, the world of antigens, things that are coming in that are foreign, right? And it's not that you're making antibodies that are entirely new to fit an antigen, the antibody already is there. And by virtue of the fact that the antigen has come, say, into, your, into one of your lymph nodes means that there's a great chance that it's going to encounter an antibody that has just a good enough fit to kill the antigen. In other words, the repertoire already exists. It's not that the antibody... What about that? What about vaccines? There's, there's tremendous adaptation and I mean, there's tremendous adaptation in people, you know, immunity. Of course, oh, uh, of course there is. But that, that, adap that adaptation largely is based on the fact that you have this massive, almost hyper-astronomical variation that already exists in your immune system. You're born with a vast repertoire of different kinds of antibodies. And, and even though you're born with that, yes, you, you, can, you make new antibodies and new antibodies with new confirmations are created, but they're not really created on the basis of an encounter with 
an antigen. There's, there's, it's almost like random mutation in the role, the role of mutation in evolution, right? Mutation creates well, variation. Uh, you're, a, you're a neo-Darwinist, okay. So you say that Right, and, and the, no, but the point about it is it's not all random. There's a random element to it. The random element is that is in the case of organisms, like, you know, in the case of complex animals, there's a random element in the sense of mutations occurring, and mutations provide the grist for the mill, right? So the more mutations you have that survive, you know, that you have, a, 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 if you're a species or a population of animal, um, the more different kinds of animals you have within that species, the greater the likelihood that that species will, evolve, will, will survive any potential change in the environment because they'll have it in their repertoire already to survive. Some of them won't make it, but the ones that have just the right phenotype based on perhaps a mutation will survive. And then they replicate, you know, that they make more, right? So their population, the population of that particular variant increases. Same thing with the immune response. When an antibody encounters um, an antigen and there's a successful meshing of the two and the antigen dies, signal is sent to the cell. The T cell divides, thus therefore making more of that particular kind of antibody. And so you've just had an increase in the population of that kind of antibody. So the next time you encounter that antigen or something similar, you're going to be very well equipped. That is a form of adaptation. But it's a form of adaptation that's based on, by and large, a, a repertoire that existed before the encounter with the antigen, if you get my drift. Does that make sense? I don't know. I don't believe it, but okay. Yeah. Seem well, like but that's, that's the central... Random, that's but, the, but everything else okay. is you know, too bad. Right, but that's the, that's, the, that's the central dogma of response today, and that's what, by and large, my, my dad's Nobel Prize is predicated. That was showing, in effect... That now, now immune systems are very, very flexible. But a lot of the flexibility comes from the fact that the repertoire of possible of different kinds of antibodies is really, really vast, and it it is vast enough so that you know it's equipped for a lot of things that you can throw at it. Is it equipped for everything? No. Cancers, certain kinds of cancers, elude the immune system. Although we can we can do things that you know. Um, will perhaps change. There are certain kinds of immunotherapy that are, are being employed right now to, to combat certain varieties of cancer. But the, but the bottom line is, this is a view of the immune response. This is, this is an, a form of immunology. The modern, the modern view of immunology is all based on this idea. It's selectionism. It's not instruction. It's not the world instructing from outside. It's the fact that you already have the repertoire. Yeah, you're generating more and more variety over the course of your lifetime, but by and large, you already have a vast repertoire, and the antigens that are coming in are encountering, there's a pretty good chance that there's going to be just good enough of a fit between an antibody that already exists and a new antigen coming in that that antigen can, can be defeated. Um, and, so, and that is, I think, that's the, that's the premise of, of, of the immune responses, as I think most, most folks understand it today. You know, maybe I'm wrong, but I think so what's the, well, I've I've seen plenty of papers showing that bacteria get antibiotic antibiotic resistance by uh, you know shuttling DNA and code to each other essentially, so they can evade you know an antibiotic. It's not just a passive thing where one magically lives and the rest dies, and that one just so you know, you're you're talking about really horizontal transfer horizontal transfer. Yeah, there's, there's an active there's an yeah, active response for yeah. by bacteria to antibiotics. Sure, sure, but that's that's uh, that's somewhat different than the immune response. But yes, and and we don't know much about horizontal transfer and horizontal gene transfer or DNA transfer in very complex organisms. But you're right, yes, that's a way that bacteria do. You know, you know, that's a, a mode of survival for bacteria. But that those are bacteria, and that's not really even though that's a survival mechanism, that's not, per, that's not an immune response per se. That's not immunity as we understand. That's something a little bit different, right? Yeah, no, I know. Right. Right, right. But so I'm not saying that that's not possible. I think that, you know, we may very well find a mechanism that's very similar to that. And it wouldn't surprise me at all. But by and large, what we understand about what T cells do and what, you know, what most of your immune response is made up of sort of suggests that you have a repertoire. Now, the repertoire is being built on over the course of a lifetime, but by and large, you have a vast repertoire to begin with, and that's what kind of gives you a leg up. Anyway, sorry, we've got off on a tangent. So, uh, no, no, no problem. No problem. What, what's the, um, so 
what would be an ideal for you to figure out about Octopi? Octopussy? What's your goal? Well, of, you uh, know, what do you hope to figure out and what, where do you go from there? Well, I think that one of the important things to, to sort of understand is um, whether, you know, um, whether octopuses have, you know, whether the, 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 form, the forms of memory that octopuses possess um, allow them to, well, whether an octopus essentially can hold in its brain or in its mind, if you like, some sort of a unified percept, something that is, you know, sort of multimodal in property and, and it can recall it and you can show evidence that it recalls that percept. Um, that's, that sounds pretty straightforward, but in order to dem- demonstrating it is, is another matter entirely. Um, but when you've, when you've gotten to that point, I think you can start to make a very, very good case that animals are aware. So that's our brass. That's what we're headed for. That's what we want to do. We want to show, I think, in the end, that octopuses, you know, can sort of integrate the world, bind together some sort of a unitary percept and hold it in time and even recall it um, to some good end, you know. And, and devising experiments to sort of test that kind of thing, um, it's, not a, it's not that straightforward of a, venture, of a venture. It's possible. But even in the case of, of very, very um, complex vertebrates, certain mammals, even, even primates, that's been tough to do. I mean, there people are, are doing those sorts of things. Um, one other goal we have is to actually look at the electrophysiology, or look at the look at the, the, the neurophysiology that's going on in an octopus's brain when an octopus is doing something, when it's solving a problem, when it's observing a particular object that's a, it's associated with food, et cetera, et cetera. We want to see what what the physiology looks like. What, what do the waveforms look like? Because, you know, when, when we do these kinds of things, when we do um, electrophysiology in the case of, of vertebrates, mammals in particular, and some, some birds, um, we can establish particular kinds of waveforms uh, across these animals that, that have a sim- sort of a similarity based on what it is they're doing in the world, right? So there's kind of a lingua franca of, of, um, of neural activity that can be associated with different kinds of behaviors, with different kinds of things that vertebrates are doing. What would be wonderful is if we could do the same sort of thing in octopus and say, hey, wait a second, even though they're very, very different looking, they're embodied in a totally different way than a, than a vertebrate, right? But they nevertheless have complex brains. Um, the physiology underlying that brain and what that brain does Hey, uh, you know, well, my working hypothesis is there probably aren't uh, uh, nine ways to skin a cat in that case. There's probably the waveforms are probably going to look very similar. I mean, you know, to some extent, neurons are neurons, basically, even though, you know, octopuses have, you know, essentially a lot of monopolar neurons. They have some other kinds of neurons. We don't we have bipolar. We have multipolar neurons. So we have different kinds of neurons, but neurons are doing particular kinds of things that are sort of universal, right? There are inhibitory neurons, there are excitatory neurons, there are neurons that cause other neurons to fire, there are neurons that cause other neurons not to fire. And that's kind of a universal. So there's sort of a universal aspect to all of this, which suggests, at least in my mind, that if we're looking for the signatures of certain kinds of um, brain uh, functions, like uh, attention, for example, right? Attention is something that's been very well studied in a lot of different vertebrates, but in the octopus, really not so much. Well, what if we sort of connected the octopus to, uh, you know, to we, we, what if we did the same, we did some EEG type experiments on the octopus while the octopus was actually behaving? Would we see waveforms that resemble the vertebrate case? When the octopus is attending to something versus when it when the attention gets lost, um, you know, when it uh, is trying to keep track of uh, a particular object as it as it moves through the world, whether uh, you know uh, it's capable of uh, falling for a visual illusion. That's something also an interesting sort of the thing that's being tried on different non-human animals. There are some famous illusions that have been you know successfully um, you know, have, have been shown to, to various um, vertebrates, and the vertebrates have the response that suggests that, in fact, they fall for the illusion the same way these fall for the illusion. Well, what is the neurophysiology? Well, for an octopus, is, is 
Are the waveforms the same? Is there a lingua franca that applies across all animals with complex nervous systems? Or will they look very different? And my suspicion, or at least my working gotcha. my default hypothesis, right, is is that what we're gonna find is there's kind of a universal, there's a kind of a universal physiology there, right? That we'll see for attention, we're gonna see waveforms that look very similar, that may look very similar to the vertebrate case. So that's another thing that's on our kind of on our agenda, I think. So you might call that the signature. Well, very good. We're, we're right at the um, the end of the time, but what what's the best way for people to find out more and you know contact you and see your papers and all that stuff? Oh, well, that's a good question. At the, at the moment, I don't have a, a, an active website, so that's that's a little tough. But um, you know, uh, I guess just uh, just keep track of of the the what's going on at the Department of um, you know um, Psychological and Brain Sciences at Dartmouth. Um, you know, we are we're still kind of very early on. We only only finished building the lab last year, and things are going sort of slowly. But I suspect um, in time, you know, we'll have we'll have the results up. But they should definitely follow, you know, the work of Peter C. T. S. E. from Dartmouth. They should follow my work. We'll hopefully be co-authors on a whole bunch of papers. Um, and I, you know, other than that, I, you know, that's that's about it for the moment. But I would say just follow follow our work, um, you know, and in well, short order. David, I, yeah. Good. Thanks very much. I appreciate yeah. it. I know there's a lot of work ahead of you. There's, you know, years and years, oh, years yeah. and years of work for everyone. But, um, but thank you for coming oh, yeah. on the podcast. I appreciate it. Sure thing. You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Thank you.